Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Everything Compliance is now the award-winning Everything Compliance, having won the top talk show in podcasting award by W3. In this episode, we have the quartet of Matt Kelly, Jonathan Marks, Jay Rosen, and Tom Fox. We take a look at a variety of topics that may on the surface appear somewhat technical, but at the end of the day, relate directly to the work of the compliance professional. Everything Compliance is thrilled to have won a W3 award as the only winning roundtable podcast in compliance. All this, shout-outs and rants, and more on this episode of Everything Compliance. We were gone for a while, but now we're back. Welcome to a summer episode, our return summer engagement for Everything Compliance. Today, I'm joined by Matt Kelly, Jonathan Marks, Jay Rosen, and myself. I'm Tom Fox sitting in. We're going to take a look at some stories and have some shout outs and rants for you. So, Matt Kelly, what is on your mind? Um, I thought I would talk today about the issue on the mind of compliance professionals this summer. The Department's idea of how chief compliance officers serve the effectiveness of the compliance program as part of corporate misconduct resolutions. Now, I think a lot of listeners have some issues with this and people, a lot of listeners, I also am deeply skeptical the whole idea of CCDO certification. We could list any number of problems or concerns such as what if the chief compliance officer does not want to certify the effectiveness of the program, but the seat and the general counsel do. And if you're certifying that every year as part of a three-year deferred prosecution agreement, how's that going to work? How do you navigate those tensions? Or flip it around, maybe this certification requirement could actually bring more personal liability to a compliance officer if you are given more authority to policies and procedures and controls on the business units like you would want But if you have to certify that, is that going to bring any liability if you are certifying and then you have a violation sometime down the road? You could talk about all of that, but I actually was really zeroing in on one specific issue that I think needs more attention, that the Justice Department keeps talking about how you would need to certify that your compliance is reasonably designed to detect and prevent future violations of misconduct. That would be the standard. You reasonably designed. Has anybody actually clarified what reasonable means in this context? Do we have a clear consensus on what reasonable is? And I've been looking around in the last couple of days and I haven't found one. So this is my next concern that I think is a bit of a sleeper issue for compliance. Assistant Attorney General Ken Polite, who is the one who has proposed this idea, and we've actually at least one FCPA settlement, I think it was Glencore, they're going to now have to certify. So this is for real. This happens. Ken Polite has not defined what reasonable means. I went and I looked at the Justice Department's guidelines for evaluating compliance programs, and they mention full or reasonably five times, but they don't define what is reasonable. 
they only refer to the U.S. sentencing guidelines. I went to the sentencing guidelines, and now their sentencing guidelines talk about reasonable or reasonably designed, will reasonably prevent reasonable assurance. The word appears 13 times, but yet again, we don't actually have a clear definition in the sentencing guide of what reasonable is. I did find a clear definition in statute, and this is what is concerning, is that it's in the Securities Exchange Act, where the text is how you need a system of internal control that, quote, provides reasonable assurance over transactions that they will be recorded and execute management says blah, blah, blah. But that we actually have the word reasonable assurance in a statute. And then the Exchange Act finally defines what it is. Reasonable assurance is such a level of detail and degree of assurance as would satisfy prudent officials in the conduct of their own affairs. And this is where I'm get a little bit anxious compliance officers. Because if compliance officers need to certify that their compliance programs are reasonably designed to and detect future violations, and that's part of a settlement definition, that means you've had the misconduct. That's why you're resolving an issue. That changes the perspective of a reasonable person. And this is where I start to, if we're going to wind up in a very zero dollars world for reason, you would need to be less tolerant of certain control failures because the day can happen. That ends logically. Question I still have how much less tolerant are we going to be less tolerant of, say, the actual violation, even if in a different way to create the same problem? Is there going to be some other standard? And we don't know. Now, I'll give you an example in the FCPA context of what, let's say you have an FCPA violation. It happens because of sham discounts that your resellers are giving to end-use customers overseas. And the sham discounts don't ever reach the customer. They become the slush fund that goes to fund the web. We have seen that times and that has actually led to FCPA violations and resolutions. We've talked about them. If you had that problem as part of a resolution, you have to now certify, say every year, that you have a redesigned program. And then you have another future, but it's very different. Let's say this time around it's going to be sham consulting agreements with interval that's not the same as a discount that funds a slush fund. But are we going to say that I should have known that you had an FCPA violation or you should have known that discounts are the problem and have a tight control? How do we square these two things? If we, this end result is the same, an FCPA violation, but it happened in a different way. You've been served program is reasonably designed for two years and now second violation. What do we do with that? And the thing is that we don't know. The Justice Department hasn't explained this. There is a clear standard of reasonable FCPA law and lore that I've been able to find. And police is not giving speak. There's no policy pronouncement from the department like amended FCPA guidance or an amended situation guidelines. That would be very helpful. Justice Department. That's the kind of thing that I'm wondering about. And I don't have a good answer for it. I don't know if anybody here does, but it seems to me like... Uh, sleeper issue that could really put compliance officers in difficult 
if you have future violations, because we don't know what reasonably designed action means. Jonathan Marks, do you have a comment or question for Jay? For Jay? For Matt? For me. Oh, I thought Matt, maybe Matt is your middle name, Jay? No, I'm sorry. I read your column and you really got me thinking as well. And I think it's absolutely 100% on point. And it's true that they avoid the concept of what what is reasonable. We have been noodling this around for a little bit, a while. I, we've had, I know Tom and I have had a lot of conversations around really what constitutes a compliance or an overall reasonable compliance program. If you take the 11 hallmarks of compliance and filter those in as a foundational aspects of what might be reasonable, I think that's probably not a bad start, but we really haven't seen, and I agree with you, I look to it the U.S. federal sentencing guidelines and all the other speeches and everything that's been issued. And no one's really talked about this, but I think it's a pretty slippery slope. And I think it's one of those things that's going to require a lot of judgment. So in those cases, especially since us accounting nerds go by principles all the time, I think we need to really fall back to really what's fundamental to a sound compliance program and what constitutes reasonable it might be an offshoot to that. But to your point, we just, nobody really knows. And until somebody gets in trouble and you see an enforcement release where they outline specifically probably what is not, they consider not to be reasonable. I think that's how this might wind up going. That's just my prognostication with the whole thing, because we saw the same thing early on with FCPA when people yeah. were trying to interpret certain things. And we really gleaned much from the enforcement releases and the deferred prosecution and non-prosecution agreements probably more so than anything that they ever issued until the guidance came out. So again, just my two cents. Oh, let me take a little With bit of one a other. Oh, go ahead, Tom. No, go ahead. I say when they talk about your personal affairs, I actually came up with a very good example of my own personal affairs where several years ago when my son was small, he figured out how to open the lock on our front door. And he hmm. ran outside while everybody was asleep. That was a control failure. But what happens then? Because I know the control failure, I implemented a secondary control. I put on a deadbolt that was six feet up. And it's the sort of thing that, that's my point. Once that you have an issue, you can't unsee that fact. So suddenly your reasonable expectation goes way up. And I do think the Justice Department is going to with that sort of standard, but... Is it going to be this way up and go back in the lock? Let's say I had not gone and he escaped again and he got into real danger. What would every parent tell me? They would say, what on earth is wrong with you? You knew this was a problem. How did you let this happen a second time? Very easily see the Justice Department having that sort of conversation about FCPA violations or possibly other compliance violations that once you know the violation, you're expected not to do it again. And if it happens again, everybody wonders, are you an idiot? And that's how it unfolds in personal affairs. How is it going to unfold in corporate affairs? I don't know, but we need more guidance from the Justice Department on yeah. how some... Yeah, it's like the writ of idioto incorrendum, and you can look that up in Black's Dictionary. But uh, you know, one of the things that you talked about is knowing so does this open up Pandora's box? Are they going to go look at the internal audit reports and see what the recommendations are for remediation? Are they going to look at your remediation and how you've done your remediation? Did you just phone it in? Or is it something that has some real meaning behind it? These are all the things that cause recidivistic behavior. It's all the stuff that we talk about all the time. 
somebody goes out to your point and finds a problem and now they know that it needs to be fixed. So that creates a gap. How is it fixed? Is it being tested? How do you know it's been remediated? And if it hasn't, are they going to take all of that or pieces of that and slam you for it? And my guess is yes. I think this is their way of saying compliance, internal audit and legal. You better start harmonizing and working together, breaking down those silos, because if there's a if there's remediation activity that needs to take place and there are gaps, you better have a really we always said you better have a plan for how you're going to remediate and document that remediation. Guess what? That's probably now more important than anything else. Let me take a contrary position. As everyone knows, I'm a recovering trial lawyer and I tried, I don't know, 30, 40 cases. Half of those were personal injury cases where the standard was the reasonable man. I suppose now it's a reasonable person. So that's something I'm pretty comfortable with from a legal perspective. And that was the definition of reasonable person, reasonable, as determined by the conscience of a community. And it means you take the factors that Jonathan Marks are just articulated about what's an effective compliance program or what's been laid out for us, and you apply them to the facts and circumstances at the time and place of the incident. Can that lead to prosecutorial abuse? Perhaps. But I think if a company is robust in their compliance remediation efforts and demonstrates that they either were looking and found it, or they had a control in place that caught it, I don't think that's going to catch up CCO liability. The problem I see is something that I think you've been talking about for a while is that what's enough? And you've previously talked about the example of waiving certain training for people who already know answers to all the training questions. Yep. Can that be done now? I, probably not if you're going to have to certify to your program. So I think that the DOJ will probably take a much more holistic approach and analysis. But if we as a compliance practitioners take a much more holistic approach that Jonathan Marks has suggested, I think that's where the DOJ wants us to go. I'm sure that Assistant AG Polite would say that's exactly right. But I do think that still the proof is going to be in the pudding. And uh, still to this day, I think we have seen a recidivist FCPA offender go the original FCPA compliance uh, corporate responsibility program that they said. But I've often said if you do that once and then you have a second failure, by definition, you can't be eligible for that again, because if you had a failure, then you didn't have an effective compliance program, but you'd already gone through the FCPA pilot program. So how is this going to work? And there are any number of ways the Justice Department could probably talk about this a bit more, and they're not. And so instead, people like us fill the vacuum. Now, you guys are my three favorite compliance people, but I still think maybe we shouldn't fill the vacuum. Maybe Assistant AG Polite or AG Lisa Monaco should fill the vacuum. The vacuum is still there. Then maybe I can just end with John Harlan, the younger, that uh, his definition of pornography, I know it when I see it. Mr. Marks, what do you have for us? We, I guess the accounting gods have opened up what has been a real bugaboo of mine for a long time, and that's segment reporting. And this goes back to the 70s when they issued accounting standard, I think it was 14. And today it's ASC 280 when we talk about segment reporting. And the issue here is actually disclosing more from a transparency perspective what's going on in segments. And so I took a little bit different twist on this. If you take a look at 
what the accounting standard actually says and really what it's about. And the reason for it is obviously to to better understand performance of the segments. And then there's also some other criteria in there helping to really assess what future cash flows might be at that particular segment. And then the last thing was to have informed judgments about the, the entity, the entity as a whole. And I think that's where we go. I think a lot of the data and a lot of the information in financial reporting, if you look at the consolidated entity, companies do a good job at burying the bad stuff. And as well as I do is when you bury bad stuff in with good stuff, some of that sort of offsets itself. So I think the impetus here is that they really investors and then from an overall fraud perspective, it's something that when we're doing a financial statement investigation, we always try to take a look at the segments because the devil's always in the details. But if you look at the accounting pronouncements, there it's not that it's complicated, but it does require a lot of work. And there are some sort of loosey-goosey things in there with regards to how to account for segment reporting. And like I said, this goes back a long time. But really, the overall message here is that the investors and everybody else is looking for that disaggregated information to determine really what's going on in the parts of the business. And like I said, a lot of that could be hidden in a footnote or not really disclosed in the footnote. So they're really going back and fundamentally asking for transparency. And so I started to think about for the listeners out there, what might be a great example of this? And lo and behold, as I'm sitting there, I go, didn't Enron have segments that were problematic? And Enron really is an egregious example of fraudulent reporting at the segment level, if you really start to unwind this, in which you know management used it to manipulate segment earnings. And Causey, who was the former CEO of Enron and other Enron re- employees, again, if you go back and look this stuff up, concealed the massive losses for Enron Energy Services, which I think they called EES, that division, by fraudulently manipulating Enron's business segment report. Again, I'm not going to go through all the machinations on how they did it or why they did it, but I think the reorganization that Enron did, that was fraudulently designed to conceal hundreds of millions of dollars of losses and heavily touted retail energy, heavily touted the retail energy business, which it would otherwise have disclosed um, as being problematic. Enron's a prime example on how firm segment financial information can significantly distort the appearance of a comprehensive of comprehensive firm performance. In other words, the consolidated whole, reducing firm transparency. So in other words, reducing transparency again. So I applaud the FASB for taking this on. I think it's long overdue. I think readers of financial information, I think when they came out with, the, with Reg FD, a lot of that information started to bleed its way out in other areas. So for those of you that are listening in today, if you ever listen into the earnings calls or whatever, somebody who's a good analyst on the other end of the phone, they really do start to, in some organizations, peck away at the segments or how is this business division doing? And they really start to drill down. And I think that this is long overdue. And I think it'll provide the level of transparency, hopefully, that will, will number one, clean this all up and give the users of financial statements the information that they need in order to make better and more informed decisions. Matt, do you have a comment or question for Jonathan? I just, I have a couple of comments, but I agree with the kudos to the FASB for out there and trying to get the ball rolling. But B, there will be a lot of potential fraud risk in this idea that audit executives would need to think about. Already, you might have questions around assumptions for some of these segments that you're reporting on or significant estimates or management judgment. How are you going to control all of that? 
How are you going to at all of those kind of issues? What about shared services across multiple and could you reallocate some expenses to make some segments look better than others? But it's an important issue because really a lot of companies are looking to sell a story and they want to sell that there's future growth. So please buy our stock. But you could have radically different story on what segment is growing at what rate. Amazon would be a good modern day example. For the record, I think Amazon's financial accounting is generally quite sound, but Amazon is actually a web hosting company and a very profitable one that has a side business as the world's largest e-commerce player that sums or doesn't make money. That's what Amazon is, really, and different segments. And depending on which ones you might want to emphasize, Amazon in very different lights. So a lot of this is going to pose some interesting ICFR and fraud risk challenges that companies are going to need to shake out over coming years. But it's still a very good thing that we're doing this. Yeah. And the other thing that I wanted to point out too, that US GAAP in this particular area is different than IFRS, which is the International Financial Reporting Standards. So if you fundamentally compare segment reporting from US GAAP to IFRS, there are some differences in there. And this, I think it's forced the, the uh, international folks to perk up a little bit and start to monitor what the FASB is really doing here. So the whole thing's kind of, the whole thing's pretty interesting to me. But I, I, again, when it comes to transparency and disclosure, anytime that we can enhance that for the users of financial statements, I think that's great. If you read the Wall Street Journal article that came out, the people were talking about increasing staff because of this and internal controls. Matt, I think something that you said is directly on point and thank you for that. I do think it's going to increase fraud risk. I absolutely do because you know what happens when the tide rolls out, as Warren Buffett used to say, you see who's swimming naked. And so I think that might there might be instances here where firms and organizations actually try not to, if this ever gets implemented in the right way, not to disclose that information and hide it in other ways. It just makes it tougher for us professionals, but definitely keeps us in business. Jonathan, the question I wanted to pose to you is, what is a segment? Is it a business unit? Is it a geographic territory? Is it a separate product or service line? How do you determine what a segment is under this? Yep. So segments are defined in there. And generally, for just for illustrative and ease of ease for the audience, it's if you have a business unit that's that makes up 10% or more of revenues or internal or revenues internally or externally, as compared to all the other business units, that would constitute a segment and would need to be broken out. There's some other criteria in there. And segment reporting, really, if you look at the standard only does apply to publicly traded companies, but so that, that's the other thing as well. But uh, there, there are some complexities around all of this and some exceptions with regards to the way the business is actually structured. But the general rule of for me, when I look at this and look at what the SEC requires is it's that 10% rule. And there is, there is a matrix of what constitutes reportable segments, but yes, no matrix, if this, then that. And if anybody out there wants, would like a copy of it, I could certainly give it to you, Tom, to post up on up online. And it, it really is pretty helpful when you're trying to determine what is reportable and what isn't reportable. But I would generally use that 10% rule as a good litmus test. Jay Rosen, what's on your mind? Thanks, Tom. I'm sure when each of us were little kids, our moms must have said to us, Jay Rosen, if all of your friends decided to jump off the Amiskeg Bridge, would you jump too? 
thinking back on that adage gave me some insight into a recent settlement that surfaced this week about another automobile manufacturer caught up in the Dieselgate emissions scandal. The company formerly known as Chrysler Group, now FCA, Fiat Chrysler Automobile, was criminally sentenced to, according to a DOJ press release, to pay a fine of $96 million and a forfeiture money ju judgment of just a little bit over $200 million. The court also imposed a three-year term of organizational probation. The plea agreement detailed a series of corruption so deep and systemic within the organization that it's a wonder anybody ever wanted to Want every, anyone ever wanting any type of clean diesel vehicle would ever buy a Chrysler again. Indeed, the over 300 million criminal assessment was only after a 310 million civil penalty. This means that over 600 million in civil and criminal fines and penalties before we even get to pre-resolution investigation costs and post-resolution remediation. If you apply the standard multiplier of pre-imposed costs, of two to five X, you can see the company paid a very large price for its Me Too conduct. The basic facts and actions by Chrysler included deliberately creating a vehicle designed to evade and defeat emissions testing from 2010 to 2017, which is some two years after the VW emissions scandal broke. In addition, Chrysler engineers and others intentionally lied to the government during emission certification process and finally, the conduct of Chrysler after the scandal broke was so insidious that the company did not receive full credit for full cooperation and accepting full responsibility for its actors for its actions. Beginning at least as early as 2010, Chrysler developed a new 3.0 liter diesel engine for use in the company's Jeep Grand Cherokee and Ram vehicles. They were marketed as clean eco diesel vehicles with best-in-class fuel efficiency. However, and to the contrary, the company installed software's features and engaged in other deceptive and fraudulent conduct intended to avoid regulatory scrutiny, all the while maintaining features that would make them more attractive to some consumers. According to the information, the company purposely calibrated the emissions control systems on vehicles to produce less nitrous oxide emissions during the federal test procedures or driving cycles than when vehicles were being driven by customers under the normal driving conditions. But as the press release noted, Chrysler took several steps further as it engaged in deceptive and fraudulent conduct to conceal the emissions impact and function of emissions control systems from its US regulators. And they did this by number one, submitting false and misleading applications to the US regulators to receive authorizations to sell the cars. Two, they made false and misleading representations to US regulators, both in person and in response to written requests for information. And finally, three, they made false and misleading representations to consumers and advertisements and in window labels including that the vehicles complied with U.S. admission requirements, had best-in-class fuel efficiency as measured by the EPA, and were equipped with clean eco-diesel engines. The actions by the company are instructive for what not to do in a corporate investigation. The plea agreement specified that the company did not receive credit for self-disclosure as it did not self-disclose its criminal conduct or fraud. 
the company did receive some cooperation credit for cooperating during the scope of the investigation, but did not receive any further for failures in both taking timely remedial action and for failing to discipline senior executives who were involved. All these actions were costly to the company in terms of how it was evaluated under the U.S. guidelines. The company can receive a credit of up to five points for cooperating, but this company in question only received two points on the discount. Since the plea agreement specified the company did cooperate in the investigation, it clearly did not accept responsibility for its conduct. The lack of those three points in the discount cost the company somewhere in the estimated range of 20 to $30 million in additional fines. The plea agreement also specified for the first time the Monaco Doctorate of evaluating past conduct as part of the overall evaluation of the company. The plea agreement detailed that the company had a prior criminal conviction for bribery under the National Labor Relations Act for bribing union officials. However, it's not clear how that worked into the overall fine, fine and penalty, except to note that the company paid the maximum under the U.S. sentencing guidelines. Additionally, while there is no requirement for a monitor in this resolution of criminal action, there was such a requirement in the consent decree from the civil action. It mandated an independent compliance auditor for a period of three years, which was beginning in May 2019. So here's some lessons learned. There are multiple lessons for the anti-corruption professional to learn from this action. Obviously, the need to engage in robust remediation for the, for the matter at issue in your company's program is crucial. Moreover, and once again, the DOJ has criticized the company for tardiness in disciplining those who are involved in the fraud or those who are aware of it. Multiple former employers were critically indicted for their conduct in this sordid affair, yet some of them are with the company all the way up to 2019 and even 2020, and not all were terminated. Some left the company in voluntary separations, which sounds a lot like retirements. Such actions could save your organization literally millions of dollars. One of the clearest, which was not stated in any of the resolution documents, was that every chief compliance officer needs to read the newspapers and stay abreast of the industry. It was September 15 that the VW public, and it was by far the largest scandal in emission testing and cost Volkswagen billions in investigative and remediation costs, fees, fines, penalties, and buybacks. To say that anyone at the company was not aware of this is simply beyond belief. Beyond just the CCO, every board member was no doubt aware of the VW scandal. Under the current state of the Caremark doctrine, there may be a duty to make an inquiry by the board of auto manufacturers to senior management to investigate if they've been involved in similar conduct. Here we do not know how the stand scandal got the attention of the DOJ, but it was clear from the plea agreement it was not from a self-disclosure. CCOs and boards need to be more proactive when competitors get in trouble about investigating similar products or services or claims internally. This matter warrants consideration by every CCO and every U.S. and public-private company. Every CCO can use the case as instruction and training for both senior management and their board, and I would like to conclude with the concept of industry sweeps. From the FCPA logistic cases in the 90s and the aughts, 
to the scandals that plagued Brazil and Latin America, many pundits have wondered whether or not the DOJ, FBI, and other global investigators purposely undertook industry sweeps. Ultimately, we found that Volkswagen was only the tip of the emissions scandal, and as we followed the body of the iceberg, we see other companies with issues that included the Opel division of General Motors, Nissan, Renault, Mercedes-Benz, Audi, and Porsche, and BMW. So with FCA Chrysler being the latest to get swept up into the emissions scandal, perhaps industry sweeps do make a lot of sense. Really interesting case, and you have to wonder, where was the board? I want to talk about the Biotronic False Claims Act case that was settlement that was announced in July. And in this case, the company had a couple of different, this was not an FCPA case, it was a U.S. domestic case, but it involved physicians. So there was a coverage for essentially the same conduct. And there were two bribery schemes that were articulated in the settlement documents. The first one was that the company had a program where it would pay doctors to put on training for other doctors and other healthcare providers about the company's product. The second bribery scheme was around lavish gifts, travel, and entertainment. I'm going to leave that to the side for a moment because I've been thinking about the program that the company had in place. Now, there's nothing inherently illegal about paying a doctor for his or her time to put on training to other physicians or to other healthcare professionals. What is moves it to illegal conduct is if the training is fraudulent, i.e., where the doctor's is paid, or if the doctor's paid to go put on training and it turns out that it's just a lavish or other dinner. But there was one further step that Biotronic used in this case that caught my eye, and part of the training was for Biotronic salesmen by physicians about biotraining or excuse me, Biotronic products. And we can leave aside the question of whether a pharmaceutical or medical device company's salespeople need to be trained by the people they're supposed to be selling them to. Perhaps yes. But what the biotronics folks were doing were essentially keeping people from going to the second to the third grade. They were holding them back, not so that they would become better athletes and football stars and play for the New England Patriots, but so that they could have more training sessions, and they could pay the doctors more money. The last part of this was that the discretionary funds to be used for these training sessions were at the discretion of the sales folks. And that seems to me to be a pretty clear conflict of interest. And when you have the salesman with discretionary funds with no oversight, then you begin to run into problems. And apparently compliance raised, but compliance was overruled somewhere higher up in the organization. And that's why I think you would need either, as Matt would say, a secondary control, or I would say oversight to validate your process or a second set of eyes. The eyes of Dr. TJ Melkenberg is my favorite example. And so you can have that kind of discretionary funds, but you have to have compliance with oversight of it. Some companies set a relatively low floor under which business folks can engage in business expenditures for customers. 
whatever you consider is reasonable. Above that, you have to have a compliance pre-approval. You can have that same sort of situation in this, same sort of protocol in this situation, but you could also and should also have an analysis of the spend. So were the top salesmen or salespeople, the people who had the top spends for doctors? If so, what's the reason of the correlation? Is it one or two doctors or is it spread out among other doctors? If you have high sales, what's the cause? Is it a super salesman or is it paying doctors to give training that doesn't exist so that they will buy your product? It's a really interesting case from a lot of different perspectives we don't typically see uh, in FCPA cases, but I would hope that the compliance professionals listening to this might begin to think about Where is our marketing spend going? Is it at the discretion or behest of the sales team? If so, do we have a second set of eyes or a secondary control over that? And do we have not just visibility into it, but oversight? So I found it to be a really interesting case. Matt and I had the chance to look at it both together on Compliance Into the Weeds, and actually we both blogged on it separately So we'll put those links in the show notes if you want some additional information. But it really raised a lot of questions. And Matt, I always hark back to an interview you did with Wei Chen, I don't know how many years ago in the two or three radical compliance podcasts you've done, where she said she wanted compliance professionals to ask questions. And much of the information she tried to put out when she was compliance counsel at the DOJ was to do that. So I found this case really gave us an opportunity to talk about it, but more importantly, Hopefully the compliance professionals out there would raise some questions. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back with shout outs and rants on everything compliance. For them. So with that, we are now on to shout outs and rants. And as Mr. Marks has not been with us for several weeks, I'm sure he's loaded for bear. But we're going to go with the same order. Matt, Jonathan, Jay, and I will end up. What do you got for us, Matt? Yeah, so I am going to go to the world of sports and rant about this live golf tournament. Is it live or leave or whatever they call it from Saudi Arabia? I have to admit, I am not a golf fan most of the time, but I am really not a fan of what Saudi Arabia is doing here or the many American golfers who are more than happy to take their cash and do this with them. Saudi Arabia is very clearly trying to buy its way back into respectability on the global stage. And a lot of American golfers are just saying, sure, show me the money and I'm happy to do it. Saudi Arabia, I know that they are a big supplier of oil and they are strategically important to us. The reality still is they are not our friends. They do not like us. I don't particularly care for that country either. They were still largely the ones responsible for these 9-11 attacks 21 years ago. Just what, last year, two years ago, they abducted a U.S. resident and murdered him, Jamal Khashoggi, pretty much unapologetically. And what really galls me is so many U.S. golfers who just think that so long as there's a lot of money, I'm fine with all of this. And I one thing I was really struck by was Dustin Johnson, who is all of 38 years old, reportedly is being paid more than $100 million to participate in the Live Golf Tournament, and who had said he wanted to do this because he wants the money because he doesn't want to work for the rest of his life. 
A, dude, you golf. B, you've already made $70 million or so before the age of 40. And now you're saying you don't want to work for the rest of your life. You don't have to. Not when you have that much money at that young age. Put it in an annuity for all I care and your whole family's going to be set for the rest of your life. It is just shameful. I am not at all surprised that they want to have some of their tournaments at the Bedminster Golf Club Donald Trump runs because, of course, he would be involved just as shamelessly. And I have to admit, at first I was wondering, okay, if they have a live tournament in the United States, do they play the American national anthem? Do they play a Saudi national anthem? But you know what? The proper music for this whole thing, the proper theme is just send in the clowns. That is all that this is. And it's just a disgrace that this is happening. Matt goes musical. Jonathan Marks, what have you been saving up for us? I actually have a shout out today and not really a rant. I've been mildly impressed with Gary Gensler, especially on the 20th anniversary of Sarbanes-Oxley and the fact that he recognizes that there needs to be some tweaks and modifications. And I'm hoping, you know, that he actually pushes those forward because there's a lot of, there's a lot of good that came about when Sox was implemented. And I think over the last 20 years, we've learned a lot. And ironically, if you go back and look at the statistics, I believe over the last couple of years, things have actually been getting a little bit worse when it comes to adverse opinions. Some of that is related to SPACs, but there's some fundamental breakdowns that are going on. And I'm a big root cause fan myself. I do believe that some of this is related to obviously the pressures that are being put on and folks, as a result of COVID-19, you know, and obviously the war in Russia certainly doesn't help at all. But I think some of the things that he's trying to put forth and some of the initiatives, I'm very pleased. With. Big shout out to Gary. I've never met you. I'd like to meet you someday. I have some thoughts and ideas I'd like to share with you. I promise I won't punch you in the nose. But I, re- I really do think that it's about time that somebody took some initiative and tried to make things better. If the regulators are demanding that we use feedback as a mechanism in order to tweak and fine tune our programs. I think the feedback that the government was getting from everybody else that's out there should be used as well in order to tweak and fine tune their programs as well. So congratulations, big shout out to you, my friend. Jay Rosen, what do you have for us today? I have an appreciation and Matt will respond to this because he's a Bostonian like me. Bill Russell was the ultimate winner He led the University of San Francisco to NCAA tournament championships in 1955 and 1956, won a gold medal for the U.S. Olympic team, and he led the Boston Celtics to eight consecutive NBA titles from 1959 to 1966. In addition to that run of eight consecutive championships, he also won one in 57 and then ended with two more in 1968 and 69 when he was a player coach. But that's only part of his story. It was his work on and off the court in support of racial justice, equality, which he will always be remembered and this will be his lasting legacy. Russell was also instrumental in opening up head coaching positions for black athletes and others. And in addition to his greatness as a player, he was also recognized a second time by the Basketball Hall of Fame as a coach. Earlier this week, Tom shared a great image in his blog tribute to Russell. Picture this, right about now, Red Auerbach, the Celtics coach during Russell's playing days, is probably twirling a stogie in anticipation of lighting up after another classic matchup between Russell and Wilt Chamberlain and the Great Beyond. I know my dad will be there too, and he'll be cheering on the show. 
So farewell, Bill Russell, for a life well lived. I want to keep with a sports theme, and I want to give a huge shout out to Vin Scully. Vin Scully was the play-by-play announcer for the Los Angeles, starting with the Brooklyn Dodgers, later Los Angeles Dodgers. He literally started his broadcasting career in 1950. I think it was two months out of college. And for the next 67 years, he was in the play-by-play booth. I started listening to baseball in the 60s, so he called Sandy Koufax, Don Drysdale in the 70s and 80s, the Tommy Lasorda era, and then Oral Hershheiser from the 90s as we moved into the 2000s. He continued to call games. When I was a kid, the Dodgers would come to town and just stomp on the Astros. So I had a healthy dislike for the Astros, but I always loved, or excuse me, for the Dodgers, but I always loved Ben Scully. And when he, all the World Series games that the Astros won, uh, the one World Series the Astros won, he called those. To my eternal chagrin, he also called the Joe Montana to Dwight Clark touchdown pass, which ended the run of the 1970s Dallas Cowboys of greatness. But I want to end with a quote that Tim Erblich sent to me, which is a quote from Bob Costas, which appeared in an ESPN tribute to Vin Scully. And this is Bob Costas speaking. Somewhere around 1994-95, I was interviewing Ray Charles for an NBC magazine and probably spent a couple hours talking with him. Then when we were done and the cameras had been turned off, he says to me, who I'd really like to meet, and I'm thinking, he's Ray Charles. He can meet about anybody. And of course, he's probably met them. Who on earth could it be? Charles' response, Vin Scully. And I say, why? He said, well, because I love baseball. But you have to understand, to me, pictures mean nothing. It's all about the sound. And Vin Scully's broadcasts are almost musical. So I enjoy baseball so much more listening to him. So I set it up with Vin and took Ray Charles to Dodger Stadium. I was sitting across from Ray, and there was an empty seat awaiting Vin's arrival. Vin came in wearing a royal blue jacket, which is how he always turned out for his baseball broadcast. As he walked towards Charles, he said, Ray, my name is Vin Scully, and it's a pleasure to meet you. He might as well have said a pleasant good evening to you wherever you may be because that's how it struck Ray. And they sat down and we had a combination baseball and music discussion and Ray Charles, and this sincerely because he's Ray freaking Charles, had one of the greatest experiences of his life. Ben Scully was not just the Dodgers announcer to me. He was our announcer. He was baseball's announcer. And I can't say enough about how he called games. I grew up listening to baseball on the radio. And so that's still my favorite format because it gives me the the flexibility to have the imagination. And Vin Scully could fill in the color. So I'm going to say goodbye to Vin Scully, even though you called the Dodgers games. Gentlemen, that is concludes this episode. I can't wait to see what we can come up with next time. Thank you, Tom. Take care, everybody. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. If you're interested in the shout-outs and rants as a separate podcast, we now have that available as well, so you can check that out. I hope you were able to check out my recent five-part podcast series on the intersection of compliance and Winnie the Pooh. Yes, I explain the modern compliance professional 
and issues through the lens of Winnie the Pooh and some of his best friends in the Hundred Acre Woods. The podcast series premiered August 1st on Greetings and Felicitations, and you can check it out there. If you want to try and tell a story about compliance in perhaps a little bit different way, this is the podcast series for you. I hope you'll join the Everything Compliance gang again. In our next episode, we're going to have a very special episode because it's going to be all shout-outs and rants. We've been saving up some shout-outs and rants, and it's going to be a lot of fun, and I know you'll enjoy it. So, Check out uh, the next episode, episode 103 of Everything Compliance, which will be premiering on Thursday, August 25th. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.